Well, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Boy, if you're here for the first time, we're so glad you stepped out. I know sometimes it's hard to step into a place. Thanks for doing that. If you're joining us online, also want to thank you for doing that, for jumping in with us. Now, I'm going to do something I, I'm not supposed to do, but I, I just think it's noteworthy. Now, most of you know that in a classroom, your better students always sit near the front of the classroom. I am proud to say that most of our staff are sitting in the first three rows. That shouldn't surprise us. They're all outstanding students. So last night, if you know me, you wouldn't be surprised to know I was watching the Michigan-Michigan State basketball game. It's on Fox nationally. I'm a Michigan fan. And I've watched a lot of Michigan-Michigan State games through the years. Football and basketball is always intense. It's always heated. This one was very, very different. It was played at Michigan. But the pregame, is, there's usually this buildup about the intensity of the rivalry. It was very subdued. And when the Michigan State players walked on the court at Michigan, the fans cheered. I ain't ever seen that. <laughs> Either way. Why the change? What happened this week? There was a shooting on the Michigan State campus. Three students lost their lives. And people are trying to make sense of, well, how do you... Three people in their 20s, late teens, I don't know. How do you make sense of that? And we wrestle in those times. Where is God in the chaos, ongoing chaos and violence of our world? But you know, it's, as long as I can remember, it's always been that way. When I was six years old, our family moved to the Detroit area. That's the love of the University of Michigan. 1967, that summer, the Detroit exploded in riots to the point that my dad took the guns out of the, the gun rack, didn't load them, but said, We're just in case. And the city exploded, literally. A year later, 1968, within two months, Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy were shot. And in the backdrop of the protest of the Vietnam War in 1970, four students on the stand, uh, campus of Kent State were shot. And shootings, what is, where's God? We served as missionaries overseas, different places. I've been in Turkey right now. Turkey's in turmoil over this building. Contractors not following code. I've been in Russia. Russia's in turmoil. I mean, it's just, it's everywhere. Where's God in the midst of the ongoing chaos and violence of a world? I want us to think about that today. So if you've got a Bible, if you'd open it to 2 Samuel chapters 2 through 4. We're going to go all the way through these three chapters and wrestle with this question. Where's God in the ongoing chaos and violence of our world? So this is where we've been. Israel's in the transition from being a loose federation of states to a monarchy. The people thought, you know, what we really need is a king to be secure. And God said, no, you really need me. And well, no, no, everybody has a king. And they kept pushing, pushing, finally said, God, okay, you can have your king, but you're going to learn through this. So what you really need is me. And this first king's name was Saul. Saul missed the memo. His authority was not absolute. It existed under God's authority. And um, God replaced Saul with a guy named David. Same David that dropped uh, Goliath with a rock. And David's growing popularity scared Saul. And so he began to chase him. It was a 10 to 13 year chase, depending on how you look at things, in which David's life was on the line. David grew in faith through that. He made some mistakes. But finally, this came to a head a couple weeks ago. Saul was killed in battle. 
Last week we saw David grieving over the loss of Saul because even though he was chasing David, David realized he was God's anointed and the reputation of God had been hurt. So that's where we pick it up and we would think, man, Saul's out of the picture. This ought to be a smooth path. David to the throne. We'll see how smooth it is. Chapter 2, verse 1. Then it came about afterwards that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to one of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. So David said, Where shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives, Ahinam, the Jezreelites, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. And David brought up his men who were with him, and it was about 600 in their families, each with his household, and they lived in the cities of Hebron. Then the men of Judah came in there and anointed David king over the house of Judah. Well, there we go, right? We're good. David's been coronated as king. Should be no problem. Well, the rest of verse 4, 5, 6, and 7, David basically sends a thank you note message to the, the people of Jabesh Gilead. Uh, way back, Saul's first act was to deliver them when they were under um, siege from an enemy. Uh, when Saul was killed, the, the Philistines cut off the, his head and the heads of his son, and they tacked their headless body to the wall. The men of Jabesh Gilead walked all the way up at great risk and took those bodies and buried them. And David's sending them a note of thanks. Thank you for doing that. And hey, by the way, if you'd like to recognize me as your king, feel free. Well, why would David need to make that kind of ask? Well, verse 8. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, had taken Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Manahim. And he made him king over Gilead, over the Asherites, over Jezreel, over Ephraim, and over Benjamin, even over all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he became king over Israel, and he was king for two years. The house of Judah, however, followed David. The time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. You understand what we got going on? In the nation of Israel, we've got two kings that have been anointed. The northern kingdom, most of Israel, has anointed Ishbosheth, who is Saul's son. So this is really the house of Saul. Ishbosheth is really being played by Abner. Abner's the one who's in charge here, but he needs somebody from Saul's house, so he's put him forward. And we've got David's being anointed in Judah. Well, verses 12 and 13, the, the leaders of the armies get together. That's Abner and Joab. Joab's going to be leading uh, David's army in the south. And they get together. And what they decide is we'll have this representative combat. You remember when David dropped Goliath, it was each body picks somebody out and we'll go fight in the winners. The loser serves the winners. And so that was the way they did it. A lot of times we do representative combat. But this time they're going to do 12. You pick 12, I'll pick 12 and they'll go. And so... I'll let you read that in verses 14 through 16. But they've each got a dagger. All 12. Got 12 pairs. One, two, three, go. They each stick each other in the stomach, and all 24 die. Not much was accomplished there. That gets us to verse 17. That day the battle was very severe, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. Now, verses 18 to 23. I'm going to tell you a little bit about Joab's family. He has two brothers, Abishai and Asahel, and they're part of the army. And during the battle, Asahel begins to chase Abner, who's the leader of the northern army. And Abner says, dude, you need to, you need to back off. Asahel keeps coming. Asahel was swift to foot. 
Abner keeps telling you need to back off, you need to back off. And finally, when Ahithophel doesn't, Abner runs him through. Abner kills Asahel, who is Joab's brother. You put that in the back of your mind, because we're going to come back to that little factoid and talk about it. It'll come into play. Um, so verses 24 and 25 through 29, Joab and Abner said, you know, this is foolish. Let's just call a truce here. We're going to have a truce, no more fighting. And that brings us to verse 30 of chapter 2. It says, then Joab returned from following Abner when he gathered all the people together. 19 of David's servants by Besides Asahel, we're missing, so that's 20. But the servants of David had struck down many of, the, many of Benjamin and Abner's men, so that 360 had died. So it's 20 to 360. And they took up Asahel and buried him in his father's tomb, which was in Bethlehem. And then Joab and his men went all night until day dawned at Hebron. But that's not the end. It doesn't, doesn't end there. Chapter 3, verse 1 gives us a quick summary. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David grew steadily stronger, but the house of Saul grew weaker. Continue. So you got a civil war. David's side is winning. Okay, verses 2 through 5 talk about David going from two to six wives. And I want to stop there and just note that long before Israel came into the promised land in the book of Deuteronomy, God warned the kings about taking multiple wives. Here's what he said in Deuteronomy 17, 17. He the king shall not multiply wise for himself, or else his heart will turn away. David disregarded that. You think, well, so far, no thing. We use it tight, that'll become a thing. And that'll become a thing for David's son Solomon when he follows him on the throne. Just throwing that out there. It's never a good idea to willfully say, yeah, I'm just going to disobey God's word. Well, verse 6 takes us back to what's going on. It said it came about while war was between the house of Saul and the house of David. So that's what we got going on. That Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. So Ishbosheth is very much a puppet. Abner the general is in charge. Now we have a little conflict in verses 7 through 11. Now, Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Ael. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine to go in? To the father's concubine. This was a woman who served, but wasn't really a man's wants and needs, but wasn't a wife, wasn't politically expedient. But to go into her is tantamount to claiming the kingdom. So Ishbosheth says to Abner, What were you doing? Then Abner, verse 8, was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head that belong to Judah? Today I show kindness to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not delivered you into the hands of David, and yet you charge me with guilt, a guilt concerning the woman. They never denies it, never admits it, but it's kind of like, how dare you? Have you ever been around somebody who controls with anger? This is Abner. Never answers the charge. Just gets really mad. Verse 9, may God do so to Abner, and more also if the Lord has sworn to David, I do not accomplish this for him. What are you going to do? To transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and to establish the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan even to Beersheba. That's saying from north to south. And he, Ishbosheth, could no longer answer Abner's word because he was afraid of him. Abner basically said, you know, you offended me with that charge. I'm going to hook up with David. And there's nothing you can do about it. And Ishbosheth left to fear. Verse 12, Abner follows through. Then Abner sent messages, messengers to David in his place saying, Who, who's is the land. Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand will be with you to bring all Israel over to you. 
he, David, said, good. I will make a covenant with you, but I demand one thing of you. Namely, you shall not see my face until you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see me. So David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife, Michael, to whom I betrothed for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, from Paltiel, the son of Laish. But her husband went with her, weeping as he went, and followed her as far as Barum. And Abner said to the husband, Go, return. So he returned. Why? I mean, David's got six wives. Why does he need Michael? It's political. He needs someone from the house of Saul. And he won her. Back in the day when he was solving, serving in Saul's court, Saul thought, I can get David dead by saying, I'll give you my wife in marriage if you kill 100 Philistines. Well, David did that. He actually killed 200. And now David wants his wife. Never mind that Paul Teal apparently loves the woman, but He's just a pawn. David needs this woman for political purposes. Have you ever seen political machinations that kind of steamroll the little guy? That's what you got here. So we go back to our chapter. Abner addresses the king and all of Israel. Now Abner, verse 17, had consultation with the elders of Israel saying, In times past you were seeking for David to be king over you. Now then do it. For the Lord has spoken of David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke in the hearing of Benjamin. And in addition, Abner went to speak in the hearing of David in Hebron. And all that seemed good to Israel and to the whole house of Benjamin. So Abner said, whoa, 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 whoa. We've known from way back that God said he's going to deliver us from the hand of the Philistines by David. So let's make him king. So there's my question for Abner. Why are you just bringing that up now? Why did you put Ishbosheth forward? Because you wanted to run the country. And your side started losing the battle. You're just being politically expedient here. Now you claim, well, you know, God always had David. Politics coming into play. Abner's switching side because he sees his side going down. Verse 20. Abner meets David. And then Abner and 20 men with him came to David at Hebron, and David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. That's, again, that feast is symbolic of honoring somebody. Abner said to David, Let me arise and go and gather all Israel to my Lord, the king, that they may make a covenant with you, that you may be king over all that your soul desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. Okay, so this is happening. Abner's going to transfer the northern king to David, and we're going to move forward. Joab, you remember Joab, commander of the army? He gets wind that Abner is meeting with David. Remember, remember Abner killed his brother in battle. Joab's still holding a grudge. So he, 22 and 23, Abner, or Joab gets wind of that. 24 and 25, Joab talks to David. Then Joab came to the king and said, what have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why then have you sent him away and he is already gone? You know, Abner, the son of Ner, that he came to deceive you and to learn of your going out and coming in and then find out all that you're doing. So Joab says, this is a ruse, man. Abner's just spying out your people. You should have taken him out. Well, in verses 26 and 27, that's exactly what Abner, uh, Joab does. He murders. He meets Abner and he murders him. 
Verses 28 and 29, David reacts to that murder. Afterward, when David heard this, he said, I, am, I and my kingdom are innocent before the Lord forever for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall on the head of Joab and all his father's house that there may not fail from the house of Joab one who has a discharge or who is a leper or takes hold of a distaff or who falls by the sword or who lacks bread. He pronounces a curse on them, but he doesn't do anything to Joab because Joab's too powerful. There's no justice for murder. Verse 30, so Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner. Why? Because he had put their brother Asahel to death in the battle at Gibeon. That's what happens in battle. People die, but they take it on themselves to murder Abner. That's our first murder. We got one more coming. Uh, Verses 31 to 39, David mourns Abner. I think it's legitimate mourning, but there's also political motivation. I'll just read verse 37. So all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the will of the king to put Abner, the son of Ner, to death. David just wants to make sure all you people in the northern kingdom, that that murder, it wasn't me. It was somebody. I I didn't want that. But it happens and it has an impact on Ishbosheth. Verse 4, chapter 4, verse 1. Now when Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died in Hebron, that's his general, he lost courage and all Israel was disturbed. Now we have a couple opportunists in verses 2 and 3. Saul's son had two men who were commanders of bands. The name of one was Bana, and the other was Rechab. Sons of Rimnon, the Beerthorite. The sons of Benjamin, for Beeroth is considered part of Benjamin. And the Beerthorites fled to Gideon and may have been, and have been aliens there until this day. Verse 4 talks about Mephibosheth, uh, Jonathan's son. We'll talk about him again in, verse nine, but he, uh, in chapter 9, but he is crippled as they try and flee. I want to focus on verse 5. So the sons of Rimon, the Beerthite, and Rechab, and Bana departed and came to the house of Ishbosheth in the heat of the day while he was taking his midday's rest. They came to the middle of the house as if to get wheat, and they struck him in the belly. And Rechab and Bana, his brother, escaped. Now when they came into the house as he was lying on his bed in the bedroom, they struck him and killed him and beheaded him. And they took his head and traveled the way of Arabah all night. Then they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron, and said to the king, Behold, that of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. Thus the king has given my lord, the king, vengeance this day on Saul and his descendants. They thought, you know what? I'm going to take Ishbosheth out. Kind of grisly. I guess we'll put his head in a container and we'll ride up to David and we'll go, Look, here it is. We'll find out in verses 9 through 12 that David doesn't take kindly to that, that they've taken out God's anointed, and uh, he has them executed. For raising a hand against God's anointing. All right, you get all that? I want to step back for a second, okay? What do we got here? We got two kings, one in the south, one in the north, and we got a civil war. Got a little representative com- combat that doesn't do anything. We got a civil war that starts going the way of David. In one of the battles, one general's brother is killed by the other general. One general's an opportunist. He makes a, a a pact with David, but then he's murdered. That's our first murder. Joab murders Abner. Along the way, David takes a seventh wife, though he's already got six, leaves one guy crying. Two guys then uh, see an opportunity here. Hey, if we finally take out the northern king and show his head to David, we can. That's our second murder. Where's God in all this? What's going, wasn't this supposed to be a, a smooth path to the throne for David? 
Does God sanction all this going on? No. Does God desire what's going on? No. But you know, humanity has a way of doing their own thing, solving their own problems their own way. And at some point, God says, okay, you want to go that way? You'll go that way. But in the midst of the chaos and violence, God is working out his purposes. His plan was always for David to be the king of Israel. And his plan was for David to take Israel to the heights and ultimately David to have a son, grandson, named Jesus who would secure salvation for the world. We're asking this question, where is it? I mean, in light of this shooting this week, in light of what's gone on around the world throughout history, where is God in the ongoing chaos and violence of our world? This is what I'd say. God redeems, doesn't sanction it, doesn't want it. God redeems the chaos and violence in our world for his purposes. Let me say that again. God redeems the ongoing chaos and violence in our world for his purposes. Now, please note, this is not an excuse for passivity. We need to be working as peacemakers. Jesus is the prince of peace. We represent him on earth. We need to be finding a way as we can to de-escalate, to talk people down, to bring people down. This isn't an invitation to passivity, but it is a statement of reality. Until Jesus comes back, there is going to be ongoing chaos and violence in our world. Um, this Christmas, our, our younger son got me a, a book about Jimmy Carter, and it's of interest to me because I was a teenager when Carter was president, so I remember names. In fact, the Carter-Reagan election of 80 is the first one in which I voted. And I just finished the part, the Camp David Accord. It's 13 days. He got, uh, Carter got Menachem Begin from Israel and Amar Sadat from Egypt, and, and they worked out this deal. And, and again, I'm not, I'm not criticizing, I'm not pleased. I'm just saying there was work done here to try and bring about peace. And, and there was great hope. But not that much is different in Israel right now. And I, I could use examples all over the place. What do we think as Christians, as believers? We're, again, we're, we're peacemakers. But the reality is that the, the world is affected by chaos and violence. We don't lose hope. God is redeeming those heinous acts for his purposes. I'd like to take this principle from out there to in here. Some of you come from homes or workplaces or whatever that are chaotic and violent. And it's hard to make sense of that. I mentioned living in Detroit. We moved there when I was six years old and for, we lived there for seven years. And I shared a, a room with my younger brother. And my dad couldn't get along with his boss, and so there was always the stress of moving, and there was always the stress of financial stress. And uh, a few times that broke down into my dad hitting my mom. And my brother and I would just sit up there and go, oh, we just, you could hear it in the scream. Man, I hate this. And we didn't know what to do, where to go with that. And that happened periodically, and then it was my summer after my freshman year in college, the last time I would live at home because my parents would move away. That summer, my, my, uh, my dad got mad, and, and he threw down a, a glass coffee pot, and it shattered, and my mom screamed. My mom was a little woman. 
maybe five foot, maybe, 90 pounds. And I'm not a fighter, but I'm going to protect my mom. And I got up out of bed, and, and nothing escalated. But I thought, am I going to have to take out my dad to protect my mom? How do we make sense of this stuff? And, and I'm not, we need to be working to de-escalate domestic violence. And, and, and I'm not saying we're passive about it, but, but it happens. What's our hope in that? That God is working, redeeming the chaos and ongoing violence for his purposes. And if you want to look for the greatest evidence of that, I ask you to look at the cross. That was an incredibly violent act. Spit on, whipped, beaten, nailed, left to hang on a cross. That's a violent act. And you got God redeemed that violent act to purchase the salvation of the world. And you know, right before he went to the cross, Jesus made this statement to his disciples, John 14, 27. He said, peace I leave you. Not as the world do I give you, but my peace I give to you. And yet 10 of 11 of those men would die martyr's death. And Jesus would redeem even their lives to move the gospel forward. That's the hope we have. That God redeems the ongoing chaos and violence in our world for his purposes. 1974, the Rubik's Cube came out. You remember the Rubik's Cube? And the idea is you want to get all the blue on one side and all the yellow on another and all the green on another and all the red on another. And I was never very good at the Rubik's Cube. That looks chaotic to me. I don't see how you're going to bring all that together. Yet if you look on YouTube, you can find some people that are, they're, just, they're like speed people. They go and they can... And they can do it. They can bring order out of chaos. That's a picture of the hope we have. Nothing's too out of order. Nothing's too chaotic. That Jesus can't redeem it for eternal purposes. That, my friends, is the hope we have. In the ongoing chaos and violence of our world. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we're sobered by David's path to the throne. <laughs> wasn't smooth. wasn't easy. But you used that to bring about your purposes in and through David's life. And you also redeemed uh, probably the most violent act, the act of crucifixion to purchase the salvation of the world. Again, redeemed for your purposes. Lord, in this mess where we wonder what is going on, that we wouldn't lose hope, there is a God who is at work redeeming this mess for his eternal and good purposes. We're grateful for that. We pray in Christ's name.